You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Service in uh, doing that. Last week, we kind of started looking at the very first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And we kind of discovered something uh, very interesting. Matthew, when he kind of starts talking about the Christmas story, Matthew does not begin with, once upon a time, there was a shepherd and an angel and Mary. Uh, Matthew begins the Christmas story in kind of a very odd and kind of a unique way. He begins with a genealogy. And one of the reasons that Matthew does this is he's got to convince his predominantly Jewish audience that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah because they would expect, as a Jewish audience, they would expect, they would demand that for anyone to be the Messiah, they would have to be able to prove that through their genealogy. And so Matthew kind of opens up chapter one there, and he goes through this genealogy to show that Jesus was related to all the right people. And then Matthew kind of does something else there. He kind of goes out of his way to include all of the people he didn't necessarily need to include or mention to remind his audience that not all of the people in Jesus' genealogy were good, righteous, or holy people. In fact, as you look at the genealogy and some of the people that Matthew weaves in there, they are some of the most notorious sinners in the Old Testament. And Matthew does that, again, to kind of demonstrate that Jesus was directly related to some of the most notorious sinners. And Matthew, in his genealogy, he kind of goes out of his way to kind of really highlight these people. In fact, it's predominantly a list of men. But in this list of men, he includes several women, three women in particular, that this Jewish audience who's very familiar with, with the Old Testament, with, the, with Israel's history, he includes three women that many of them would just as soon forget about and ignore. Women like Rahab, the harlot, Tamar, whose story is so sordid and offensive, I couldn't tell you that story in church. You have to read it on your own at home with the blinds closed. It's that bad, okay? Matthew mentions Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Matthew mentions all of these people he doesn't need to mention, doesn't need to include And if anyone was trying to build a case that Jesus was the Son of God and had a divine lineage, you wouldn't include these people. You would ignore them. You would act as if they never existed. And yet Matthew goes out of his way to highlight these people. Why? 
I think before Matthew got to the story about the babe born in a manger, the star, the shepherds, Mary and Joseph, Matthew wanted his audience to know then and his audience to know now, this is not your typical story. It's about Jesus, the Son of God, who came into this world not to show righteous people more righteous things, but that he came into this world related to sinners in order to save those sinners. Sinners like Matthew. Remember, we talked about the tax collector who sold his people out. People like you and me. It's to show how God intentionally, purposefully, used hurting, broken, messed up people to be a part of the genealogy of Jesus. To show that there were some pretty messed up people, some pretty big sinners that were related to Jesus. A part of the link that led to his birth. And, and as I said last week, this wasn't an obstacle to God. But rather, it was a part of a bigger plan. I think it would be safe to say that if some of us were alive back in those days, God may have used us. Despite our sinfulness, our unrighteousness, our mistakes, our failures to be a part of the genealogy of Jesus. Again, to show, to demonstrate that God can and does and will use very broken, very hurting, very messed up people as an overall part of his purpose and plans throughout history. And God does that. You want to know why? They're the only type of people that exist. So this morning, using Matthew's genealogy, we're going to jump off into one of the other characters mentioned there in Matthew chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, it says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, why does Matthew specifically say Judah and his brothers? All the people living in Matthew's day and age knew when Matthew said the name Judah, he was bringing back to their remembrance a very familiar story. Judah, as you know, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's 12 sons eventually became what we call the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 tribes of Israel came from those very 12 sons of Jacob. And of those 12 tribes, those 12 sons, God was going to choose one of those 12 tribes through which to bring the Messiah. And of those 12 boys, God had 12 choices, right? He could have chose Reuben. Reuben would have been the most logical. It's the choice that would have made the most sense because Reuben was the firstborn. And as we'll see in the story today, Reuben was a good guy. But God didn't choose to use Reuben. God could have chosen the most famous of the 12 sons, a guy named Joseph. Joseph was the one that God used to get all of the other brothers and their families into Egypt 
to ultimately be delivered and saved from starvation. Joseph was the one who seemed to do all of the right things. Joseph was the one who became the famous one, the right-hand man to Pharaoh there in Egypt. Joseph was the one who got several chapters of the Bible devoted just telling his story. Joseph was the guy who went through unbelievable difficulty, never gave up his faith, and in the end is the hero of the story. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. And as God looked at those 12 sons of Jacob, God knew he would choose one of those boys through whom to bring forth the Messiah. And God didn't pick Reuben, the firstborn. God didn't choose Joseph, the righteous one, the favorite one, the famous one. I think God specifically chose Judah. Because as you're going to kind of see, as I tell you the story this morning, Judah is someone all of us can relate to. And in fact, it is the story and the point of Christmas. Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. The Bible says they couldn't even say anything nice about Joseph. And those of you familiar with the story, you know how it goes. One day, Joseph's brothers, they're out in the field taking care of the family's sheep. Jacob, their father, sent the younger brother Joseph, just to kind of do a welfare check on his brothers. And the other brothers kind of see Joseph coming to them off in the distance, and they come up with a plan for Joseph's life. And verse 17 says this, So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into a deep pit. We can tell our father that a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of all his dreams. But Reuben, good guy, good guy Reuben, came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed his blood? Let's just throw him alive into this pit here. That way he will die without having, without our having to touch him. Reuben was secretly planning to help Joseph escape, and then he would bring him back to his father. So the other brothers, they listened to Reuben's plan, and when Joseph got there, they stripped him of that beautiful robe their father Jacob had given to Joseph, and they just threw him into the pit to die of starvation and dehydration. And it says as those brothers are sitting around the campfire, not too far from that pit eating supper, they could hear the, the cries, the, the screams of, of help from Joseph. And as they're doing that, they kind of see off in the distance a, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders were coming toward them. And then Genesis 37 verse 26, this is where we're introduced to J Judah. This is where Judah comes into the story. 
And Judah questions his brothers and he says, what can we gain by killing our brother? That would just give us a guilty conscience. Let's sell Joseph to those Ishmaelite traders. Let's not be responsible for his death. After all, he's our brother. And the brothers agreed. So when the traders came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And the Ishmaelite traders took him along to Egypt. 20 pieces of silver divided among the brothers. So in essence, there stands Judah with his two pieces of silver for having just sold his brother into slavery and to never see him again. And so to cover their tracks, the brothers, they kind of devise a very clever scheme to tell their father Jacob. Verse 31, then Joseph's brother killed a goat, dipped the robe in its blood. They took the beautiful robe to their father and asked him to identify it. We found this in the field, they told him. It's Joseph's robe, isn't it? You know, the one you gave him, dad? Jacob recognized it at once. Yes, he said, it's my son's robe. A wild animal has attacked and eaten him. Surely Joseph has been torn in pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth. He mourned deeply for his son for many days. His family all tried to console him, but it was no use. I will die in mourning for my son, he would say, and then begin to weep. Now Judah fully knows that what his father is experiencing right now, the heartache, the heartbreak, he is partially responsible for what his father's going through. And you can almost kind of see Judah trying to console his father to say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry about Joseph. I know your heart broken. I know he was your favorite son. I feel what you feel. We all miss him. We mourn with you. And that began for Judah 22 years of cover-up, secrecy, and lies. For 22 years, Judah lived with this deception. For 22 years, Judah never broke, never let on. For 22 of Joseph's birthdays, when Jacob probably relived the whole tragedy, Judah never said a thing, never confessed, never let on about the truth. Now, some of us today can relate to Judah. We have secrets. Maybe we have chapters in our past we hope nobody ever finds out about. Maybe you went into a marriage with a few chapters of your life you hope your spouse and kids never find out about. Maybe you kind of took a current job with some secrets from your past you hope your current employer never finds out about. And when you have secrets in your past, you tend to do the same thing Judah did, the secret keeper. 
The thing Judah did, which people with a secret tend to do, is he lived his life alienated from God. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, Judah lived his life with this sense that someday, one day, the bottom is going to drop out. All of my secrets are going to be revealed. God is going to get me. And someday God is going to judge me. And he is going to punish me. And Judah lived his whole life, those 22 years, with a sense that God is out there somewhere waiting to ambush me. Joseph says, I know what I've done. I know I'm guilty. I know whatever God's going to do, I deserve. I can't face God. I can't possibly have any kind of a relationship with God because the next time I meet God, he is just going to come crashing down on me. And so Judah lives the rest of his life in fear and alienated from God because he had this secret and he did not know what to do with the guilt, the shame, and the condemnation. It could be if you're here this morning moving toward Christmas and you're like Judah and maybe you've got a secret or some secrets in your past and the reason you may not like church is because you say, well, I always feel guilty at church. I don't even have to talk about sin. And you just automatically feel guilty. You're carrying secrets. You're coming to church. And you're kind of like Judy. You're thinking God's out there somewhere. And God's just waiting to ambush me, to get me back, to pay me back. And again, here's the thing. If you're not careful, you'll spend the majority of your life running from a God that you don't need to run from. Feeling alienated from a God who has paved a way for you to have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, and his work upon the cross. And if you're not careful, you'll allow your past, your secret, your sin, that chapter, that season, that moment in your past what you did as a youth, what you did in college, whatever it may be, if you're not careful, you will allow those secrets to position you with God that whatever anything bad happens in your life, you will automatically assume that's God's judgment. This is God's punishment, and you'll live life thinking that somewhere out there, God is waiting with a club to pounce you, to deal with you the way you deserve to be dealt with. That was Judah. Every time something bad happened, he was convinced this is it. God's finally dealing with me the way I deserve to be dealt with. And here's the ironic thing. The whole time, God knew what Judah had done. God says, you know what, Judah? I am the exact opposite of what you believe is true. I'm not going to punish you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to use you to bless the world. Because I am not the God you think I am. 
And my attitude towards you, Judah, is not what you think it is. My thoughts are higher. My ways are higher. Well, as the story goes, 22 years pass. There's a famine in the land. And so Jacob gathers his sons together except for Benjamin. Jacob has a younger son and Benjamin becomes Jacob's favorite son now that Joseph is gone. And Jacob tells his sons, guys, I need you to go to Egypt. I need you to get us some grain. They've got a surplus there. Go and get us some so we don't starve. So they load up. They go to Egypt with some silver to buy some grain. And apparently tens of thousands of people have also journeyed to Egypt because it's the only place in the region that has any food because they saved grain during the seven years of plenty thanks to Joseph's leadership as the prime minister of Egypt. And with all those, within all of those hundreds and thousands of people, Joseph, who is in charge of distributing the grain, sees his brothers. And Joseph goes over to them and he begins to question them. And of course, they don't know who he is. They haven't seen Joseph for over 22 years since they sold him into slavery. And Joseph begins to ask them questions through an interpreter, pretending not to know or understand their language. And Joseph says to them, where are you from? Are there any other brothers? And they let it be known to Joseph that there is another brother who's back with their father, Joseph, by surprise, Joseph, or Joseph says to his brothers, I believe you're spies. I believe you have come to Egypt to spy out the land and I am gonna have you arrested. And Joseph calls the guards and he tells them, arrest these men, they are spies. And the brothers say, no, 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 wait a minute, we're not spies. And as they begin to defend themselves, here's what they say to each other. Not knowing, Joseph understands what they're saying amongst themselves. Genesis 42, 21. Now again, remember what, Ju what Judah thinks. God is out there. God is going to get me. This has all happened because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his terror and anguish and heard his pleadings, but we would not listen. That's why this trouble has come upon us. Didn't I tell you not to do it, Reuben asked, but you wouldn't listen. And now we are going to die because we murdered him. Of course, they didn't know that Joseph understood them as he was standing there, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. In other words, what those brothers are saying is, we all knew it was coming. It was just a matter of time. We knew eventually God was gonna get us back. He was gonna pay us back. We knew we were never gonna get away with this. And now after 22 years, God is finally taking out his vengeance on us. And they think this is the end for them. But they finally convinced Joseph to let them go. And Joseph says, okay, you can go home, but I want you to come back and I want you to bring that younger brother, Benjamin, with you. Just to prove to me that you weren't lying, that you really do have a younger brother named Benjamin. 
and that you are not spies. And Joseph takes one of the brothers, Simeon, captive as leverage to make sure they returned with Benjamin. So they load up their stuff, they get their grain, they're headed back home, and I'm sure they're thinking and saying as they walked along, whoo, boy, we dodged a bullet there, didn't we? I thought this could have been God's judgment. I thought this was, this was the moment, that this was just the beginning of the end, but at least for now, we're safe. But they still live with this idea that somewhere out there, God is waiting. God is gonna get us. It's just a matter of when and where and how. So they camp out one night as they're making their way back home. They open one of the sacks of grain and lo and behold, there's silver hidden. Joseph had silver hidden in one of the sacks of grain. All the silver they used to pay for the grain has been put back in their bag. And listen again to their response in Genesis 42, 28. They were filled with terror and said to each other, what has God done to us? In other words, it's God. God did this. God is after us. God is getting back at us. You see, their whole perspective wasn't, God help us, God bail us out, God forgive us, God save us, God deliver us. Their whole perspective was, we've done something evil and God is just out there waiting somewhere to get even with us. That wasn't the case at all. But you see, when you carry a secret nobody knows, and you've never resolved it in your heart. Again, if you're not careful, your whole outlook on God becomes, God is ticked off with me because of what I've done. And he's just waiting out there for an opportunity to get even with me. And see, when you carry that kind of guilt, you carry that kind of shame, that kind of condemnation, it impacts and it distorts our image and perspective of God. And here's the good news. You may feel alienated from God because of your secrets, but God does not feel alienated from you because you know what? It's Christmas. And at Christmas, God sent a savior that forgives and removes all of the stuff that has the potential to alienate us from God. And even though your guilt and your condemnation makes you feel like I can't approach God, when you become a Christian, when you accept the free gift of Jesus Christ, God looks at you as a brand new believer and he doesn't see guilt because all of your guilt, all of your secrets, all of your sin was placed upon his son 
as he hung upon the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your secrets. He died for your sins. And in dying for your secrets and your sins, he made it possible for you, the sinner, the secret keeper, the ones with all these chapters in your life you hope nobody finds out about to come to him and say, I don't have to approach you as the one who doesn't know. I don't have to come to you, God, as one who's waiting to squash me like a bug. I can come to you, and I can now call you Father, not because I'm innocent, but because you punished my sin and my secrets and placed my guilt and penalty on your son. That's the point of Christmas. God sent a Savior and he chose to send that savior through a secret keeper in order to make the point to the rest of us that have allowed our secrets to keep us from our heavenly father. So they go back. They convince Jacob to let Benjamin come back to Egypt with them. They show up. Joseph sees his younger brother, Benjamin, having not seen Joseph, Joseph's now 37. Joseph sees Benjamin, and the Bible says Joseph leaves the room, and he just weeps. And he comes back, and he sells them the grain, and he asks them some more questions about their father. He wanted to make sure his father, Jacob, is he still alive? And then he loads them up and he sends them on their way with their grain. But before he does, Joseph has one of his servants hide a silver goblet in Benjamin's sack of grain. They're on their way once again thinking, hey, we dodged another bullet. We got our grain, we got Benjamin, we've got Simeon, everything's cool, and we are never going back to that place again. Life is good, even though God is still out there somewhere waiting to get even with us, but for now, life is good. Then they look behind them and they see some Egyptian soldiers coming after them. The soldiers stop them and tell them somebody stole the prime minister's silver goblet and they have come to check their sacks of grain. The brothers tell them, hey, check away. We didn't steal anything. They eventually get to Benjamin's sack of grain and there the goblet was. And the brothers are thinking, ah, oh, it's God. God did this. He, he's, he finally got us. He was just toying with us all those other times. But man, God's got us now. So the soldiers load them all up, take them back to Egypt, bring them before Joseph. And again, notice what they said in Genesis 44, 16. How can we plead? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. Basically, God's finally got us. We knew he eventually would, and he did. Once again, the unresolved guilt, hidden secret, alienated them from God. Colored their perception of God, twisted their understanding about the nature and the character of their heavenly father as secrets 
and sins often do. For the sake of time, let me just quickly summarize the rest of the story for you. Joseph eventually goes on to reveal himself to his brothers. He completely forgives them for what they had done. And actually, Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50, 20, a lot of you have heard this verse. It's a powerful verse. God turned into good what you meant for evil. He brought me, Joseph is saying, he brought me to the high position I have today so I could save the lives of many people, including you, my brothers, and my father. So Joseph tells his brothers, you go get your father Jacob, bring him back, bring the whole family, bring the whole caravan, bring the whole kit and caboodle to Egypt, and I'm gonna provide shelter and food all made possible because God took something that others intended for evil in the life of Joseph, and he turned it for good and the preservation of the nation of Israel. So they go back, tell Jacob what the truth was, the story's out, the lies are exposed. And instead of finding judgment, Joseph's brothers find forgiveness and restoration. I think God looks down from heaven as this whole story unfolds and he says, perfect. Here are these dusty shepherds in a land far, far from home with nothing to stand on. No self-righteousness, no good deeds, no defense. And in the presence of a man, their brother Joseph, who had done nothing wrong who had suffered much at the hands of his brothers through most of his teenage years, throughout his 20s, spent time in prison, was tempted and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He remains faithful to God when it seems God was not faithful to him. And through his wisdom that God gave to him, Joseph saved Egypt and the nation of Israel. And Joseph stands there, having gone through all of that, looks at his brothers and he says, I forgive you. And not only do I forgive you, but I'm gonna take care of you and your families for the rest of your lives. God looks at that story. He says, perfect. Let's use Judah not Joseph. Let's use Judah to bring the message of salvation into the world because those are the kind of people it's for. And let's let them see this picture of what salvation is all about. God says to Joseph's brothers and to us, I forgive you, not because you confessed, I caught you. I knew what you did the moment you did it. As a matter of fact, I knew you were going to do it before you did it. You never owned up to it. And yet, I forgive you. And I've sent to you a savior. Welcome back into a relationship with me. Can you even imagine like I said earlier, we've all got secrets. We've all got a past. We've all got chapters, nights, moments, memories. 
And because it's Christmas and because Jesus came to this world to be a savior, because he lived and died on a cross for your sins, for my secrets, and he came back to life. Because of all that, again, we don't have to be alienated. We don't have to be afraid of God anymore because he took our secrets, he took our sins, our faults and our failures, and he placed them on his son. And Jesus died on the cross for our secrets and our sins so that we could have forgiveness, eternal life, and an intimate relationship with our heavenly father. And God looked at those 12 boys and he said, Reuben's the oldest one. Joseph, he's the righteous one. But I, I'm gonna choose the worst kid in the bunch, Judah. That's my man. That's the point of Christmas. He says, that's why I'm sending you a savior. And in choosing Judah, God is sending you and me a message for all of time and eternity that we serve a God whose grace is so broad and so big that it extends around and it encompasses all of our dysfunctions, all of our sins, all of our secrets, all of our anger, and all of our past. And God, on purpose, chose the least likely candidate through whom to bring the Messiah, to send the message that he knew every one of us in this room were gonna need to hear, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the savior of the world and he's come to deliver you, to save you from your sin, your guilt, and all of your secrets. And that's why we celebrate Christmas because we celebrate the coming of the one for those who did not deserve it. To die for those of us who did not deserve it, to give us what we do not deserve, forgiveness, eternal life. That's why he is the savior who is Christ the Lord. It's what we continually celebrate throughout the year as we continue to watch God change and impact lives to set us free from our past, our secrets, and our sins. Please don't let your past get in the way of what God wants to do now and into your future. That is the story. That is the point of Christmas and I hope you will personally embrace that if you've not already done so. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, thank you just for this incredible story. And God, just help us to wrap our minds around what you did and why you did it. It's to give us hope that you could take the worst, the least likely person and use them to bring forth your son, Jesus Christ. God, I don't know about anybody else, 
But I personally find that very encouraging. God, especially as I think back on my past, my secrets, my failures, my mistakes, my struggles. God, how often I would allow those to disqualify me from ever having any kind of a relationship with God. And then I look at a story like Judah and I realize you specifically came for him so that I could be included in who the Savior came for. That I didn't need to have some perfect, squeaky clean life. That I didn't have to have a platform of righteousness. I didn't have to build a tower of good deeds to get to you. You came down to me. In my darkness, in my sins, in my failures, and in my mistakes. And you came so that through your son, Jesus Christ, you could have a living, dynamic, intimate relationship with me. And God, you've done that for all of us. You've done that for the whole world. God, I just pray for anyone here this morning that allows any of the secrets, the sins, the mistakes, the failures of their past from just fully embracing you. That God, I pray, Lord, that this story would minister to their hearts, that it would give them hope that not only did you come for the Judas of this world, you came for all of us. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you again for this opportunity of Christmas to once again focus and to celebrate the love that you have expressed toward us in sending your son Jesus Christ to be the savior of the world. And Father, I pray that no one would walk out of this door this morning without having made that connection with you this morning. Your word says that if we just make those words, Jesus is Lord, Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth, we just speak those words, Jesus is Lord. And believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead. Your word says we will be saved. It's that simple. So Father, I just pray for those that have not spoken those words that have made that confession of their mouth. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give them faith in their hearts to believe that you did raise your son from the dead. And through that confession and the belief in our hearts that we will be saved, Father. And we thank you for that gift of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if we want to just invite you, uh, follow Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.